we are going to get in shape spiritually, if we're going to build the body of Christ and get stronger in our walk with God collectively as a church, it's going to take some working out. It's going to take some spiritual discipline and some exercise. It's going to take some, quote, spiritual gym time. So that's where we are, 1 Corinthians. We're going to kick it off today in chapter 1, and you're here for the very beginning of it. So uh, before I jump in, let me go ahead and pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are excited to study your word. Lord, your word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. Father, it, it, it illuminates us, Lord, and your word says it's good for teaching us what is right, for rebuking us when we're doing something wrong, for correcting us and helping us to get back on track with you and for... Um, training us in all righteousness. Lord, we want to be thoroughly equipped as followers of Christ for every good work that you have for us. And so, Lord, as we go through this book of 1 Corinthians, I pray that you would be our teacher and our guide. And Lord, help us, even during the week, to get ready for Sunday as we can read ahead, as we can read the chapters in this great book, and that we can study it together and learn together from you. So, Lord, we pray your blessing on this. Uh, Father, we're mindful, as we were talking earlier in a song about how you work all things together for good. Lord, it certainly wasn't a good thing at all that happened in Santa Fe, Texas on Friday. Lord, we're asking you to pour out your Holy Spirit, the great comforter, the one who can go into places where people's hearts are grieving and in despair, and we ask that your spirit would especially comfort those family members of the nine students and the one teacher who were tragically killed by that person. God, and we pray that you just help us as a nation. Help us to figure out ways to stop this from happening, Lord. This seems like it's happened more and more and more just in this last year. And it's on the increase rather than the, de the decrease. So, Father, help us to find ways to secure campuses and to find peace and to keep these uh, tragic events from occurring. We ask you to help us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we introduce us uh, to this book of 1 Corinthians, I want you to imagine a church. Imagine a church, whether it could be a modern church today, could be a church back in the first century. But I want you to imagine a church that is just racked by divisions, racked by factions and people who are at odds with each other within a local congregation. I mean, first, there are church leaders who are promoting themselves against one another, and each church leader has his own loyal brand of followers and these groups within the church were aligning themselves around a certain leader and sort of dissing or disrespecting these other church leaders that, that God had given in that congregation. Uh, this church uh, had one member who was actually having an affair with his own stepmother. And instead of being appalled, instead of disciplining this church member, there were many people in the church, they were arrogantly boasting of his freedom in Christ to act in that way. This church was racked by Christ followers. They were suing each other in the secular courts. Some of these church members were visiting prostitutes regularly. And there's another group in the church on the other end of the sexual spectrum that were saying, you know, the best practice for us all, even if we're married or not, is just to practice complete sexual abstinence. 
They were debates active in church about just to what extent new Christ followers should be breaking away from their pagan past. And there were disagreements about what is the proper role for men? What are the, is the proper role for women in the church of Christ? That was all happening in this church in the first century in Corinth. It sounds like a sick bunch of pseudo-Christians to me. Uh, and since Paul left uh, a few years earlier, this church had taken some detours on the road to Christian maturity. It's actually a description of the church in Corinth. There had a cluster of problems and issues. And it had been about five years since Paul had started this church in southern Greece, Paul had since gone off to continue his missionary work in other places. He happened to be in Ephesus, this large city in western Turkey at the time, and some people from the church had visited him, and perhaps even with a letter, uh, basically saying to him, Paul, uh, the church that you help us start in Corinth, we've got problems. We've got a lot of questions for you. Can you please write back to us or visit or both? Please, Paul, help us out. And so this letter to the first Corinthians is a reply from the Apostle Paul to their request. Almost every ancient scholar acknowledges that the author of this letter is the Apostle Paul himself around the year 55 AD. Now you can see from the, uh, the map up there where Corinth is. It's in southern Greece. There is this narrow strip of land. You see Athens about 100 miles to the east of Corinth. Maybe it's only about 50 miles. But Corinth is on the western side. There is an isthmus, that it, at this short strip of land that separates uh, the eastern side of Greece from that big chunk of land that's on the western side. It's only four miles wide. And if you go around the southern end of Greece, that was considered a dangerous place to sail for sailors. And so what they figured out in the ancient world is it's a lot easier, it's a lot safer just to land on the seaport on the eastern side of this four-mile strip of land and cart their cargo across the canal over to the western side and then continue on uh, in their uh, naval trade and their seafaring trade during that time. So that's why Corinth became one of the major cities in the Roman Empire, along with Alexandria and Rome and Ephesus and other places like that. So Corinth was a major city. It's in southern Greece. It's the biggest city in Greece. It had almost 100,000 people in the first century. It's famous for its seaport. I don't know if you knew this, but 100 years before Paul arrived in Corinth, uh, there was a war, and the Romans had destroyed the city, and Julius Caesar had actually commissioned Corinth to be rebuilt, and he made it into a Roman colony. By the time Paul arrived to Corinth, it was the wealthiest city in Greece. It was a major multicultural urban center. As I said, it was a big seaport. It was a melting pot. Various cultures came together. It was a stopover for sailors who had their pockets full of money and they were, quote, looking to have a good time. And that's why that, they even developed a verb in Greek called to Corinthianize, which means to carouse and to have a lascivious time. Every two years, Corinth had the Isthmian Games, which were uh, kind of like the Olympic Games. They were second in popularity in Greece only to the Olympic Games. Every two years, they had a massive stadium. They had a large theater that held 18,000 people. They had a concert, an outdoor concert hall that held 3,000 people. So you could tell it's very well developed in the first century. 
It became populous because, and popular because of that four-mile canal that just drew the trading world in the eastern side of the, of the Mediterranean. It drew the trading world into the city of Corinth. Now, there's a massive hill that overlooks the city of Corinth. It's kind of like if you know the city of Atlanta. There's a, there's a mountain over by Atlanta called Stone Mountain right? It's where the famous, you know, the, the, the stone sculpture of the Confederate leaders is located over on Stone Mountain. I climbed Stone Mountain one time. You know, you can, you can actually walk right up to the hill. And outside Corinth, there's this mountain. And on the top of that mountain, there was a uh, temple to the uh, goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, right? So, uh, the ancient Greek geographer, his name is Strabo, he claimed that a, there were a thousand, at one time, there were up to a thousand cult prostitutes in the temple to Aphrodite that worked there, and it was actually considered an act of worship to the goddess of love to go up there and have sex with a priest or a priestess. That was considered adoration of the goddess. So if you became a follower of Jesus in Corinth, you had your work cut out for you <laughs> to try to, quote, quote, become sanctified, to try to become more like Jesus and less like the, the, the people in the world that were, uh, that were not following God and his commands for our life. Uh, you had a whole suitcase. If you became a new believer in Corinth, you brought a whole suitcase full of sexual promiscuity, of misunderstandings about what it means to, to be a citizen, to be godly, to follow God, to be religious. They had a temple to the god Asclepius, the god of healing. There were sites for worshiping Isis, who was the Egyptian goddess of the sea or of seafarers. Of course, we know him better as Poseidon. Um, and then besides religion, Greeks were famous for their philosophical ideas. They had a bunch of philosophers that probably came through the city at all different kinds, you know, uh, hawking their various forms of philosophy. Uh, Greeks were big into individualism, into equality, into freedom, and they had a distrust of authority. I think we, we get a lot of our cultural uh, heritage from the Greeks when you think about it. Individualism, equality, freedom above all, freedom of expression, distrust of authority. Now, within the Gentile city of Corinth, there was also this Jewish synagogue as well. That would have been the place that the Apostle Paul started when he arrived to the city. So he arrives to the city, uh, coming over from Athens, arrives in Corinth, immediately starts meeting in the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath day on Saturday. He starts to preach the good news that the Messiah, that the Jews are waiting for, is actually has actually come. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And on Sabbath day, Paul would preach to the Jews and to the God-fearing Gentiles who attended those Saturday meetings. Now, over time, Paul got rebuffed by the majority of the Jews, and so they, he decided to meet at one of the other uh, people's house. And there's a Gentile home next door to the synagogue. I think this is kind of funny that right next door to the synagogue is a Gentile home of this man named Titius Justus, and it says in the book of Acts that Paul started meeting there. So, hey, guys, if you're going to the synagogue but you want to learn more about Jesus, just uh, come over next door to TJ's house or Titius Justice's. Then the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, he and his whole family convert to the Christian faith, and they start going over to the church as well, as well as some of the God-fearing Gentiles. And so that's how the church in Corinth began. That's how it began to flourish. 
Uh, Paul had become perhaps fearful, and it says in the book of Acts chapter 18 that the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision, a dream at night, and said, Paul, do not be afraid. I've got many people in this city that belong to me. And so Paul was encouraged by the Lord, and he stayed in Corinth for 18 months and planted a strong church, certainly not a church without problems, but a strong, mostly Gentile church. Paul obviously had a soft place in his heart for the Corinthians. He wanted to shepherd them. He wanted to pastor them and to grow into greater Christian maturity. We don't know how big the church was. The Bible doesn't say how many people were attending the church in Corinth. We just know that it was probably big enough that it had to meet in different households because they didn't have one building that the church met in. The church met in various house groups in people's homes. And apparently what it was going on in the Corinthian churches and the, the local congregations was in these different households, they were, they were forming groups and each of these groups started to identify with their favorite Bible preachers. Some people really liked Paul. Some people liked this other teacher named Apollos. Some people liked Cephas or Peter. And some of them were like super spiritual. They said, oh, I don't follow any human teacher. I follow Christ. And it was like, ooh, you know, even bigger. They had, uh, we know that the church was vibrant, that it was full of spiritual gifts. It, they were great at singing and prophesying and celebrating the Lord's Supper, but it was a church filled with problems. Mainly the problem in this church was division, and we're going to find out more about that this morning because the message of today is there is a great power in unity. There's a great power in unity when God's people come together and work together for a common goal, for the glory of God, for the advancement of his kingdom. When everybody is roaring, is roaring, when everybody is rowing, rowing, is that the right word? You can be roaring while you're rowing, but uh, that could be encouragement to other people. But rowing oars, when everybody's doing that together in, the, in sync, in the same direction, there is an amazing power in that unity. And there is amazing weakness in a church that is racked by divisions. And that's why I think the people came to Paul and said, Paul, we're getting desperate. We need your help. You've got to help straighten us some of this stuff out. Let's jump in and let's see what the heart of the issue is, uh, especially in this first chapter. So we begin with the beginning, uh, the first scripture, verses 1 through 3. He says, Paul, identifying himself, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, we believe he was one of the leaders of the synagogue at the time originally, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul immediately starts off, he identifies himself as an apostle. Now, apostle was a, was a term of authority in the church. The apostle was the highest term of authority. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, and right under him in authority in the church were the apostles. The apostles were the ambassadors of Jesus. They were officially, officially commissioned by Christ himself to go out and preach the good news of Christ and to plant new churches and to, and to form new Christ followers into local congregations. So they gather these followers, they form them into congregations, and what we call these gatherings 
uh, the church that, the, the term that we use for that is church. We call these gatherings churches. When you read Paul's letter to the church, one of the questions that come up, because I told you that this church is racked by divisions and problems, and Paul is addressing all these problems almost all throughout the entire 16-chapter letter. Uh, one of the questions that might even come up is, why did Paul even call them the church of God? Because in verse 2, he says, to the church of God in Corinth, right? Many of the problems that they had, they weren't acting very Christian, uh, but one thing to remember, if, if somebody is, if a local congregation, no matter how many problems they have, if they still have the essentials, if they still have faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are still a church of God. The, the point of entry into relationship with, with Christ is not going to be our own spiritual performance. The point of entry is our faith and our trust in Jesus. He saves us by faith. He puts us into his family. And so it's called the church of God. The church is the called out ones who gather together like we're doing right now to worship God, to follow Jesus. And Paul seems to know, and, and this is where I love the faith of Paul. Paul seems to know that whatever the struggles, the abuses, the divisions, the strife that this church is having right now, they are still a church. And what unites them is who they all are collectively in Christ, much more than whatever could divide them. And so it's called the Church of God in Corinth. Our church right here, we could be called the Church of God in Sebastopol. This church belongs to God, not to us. The head of the church is Jesus himself. It's not any one of us, no matter what our title of leadership is around here. And so Paul begins, he calls them a church of God. He recognizes that, that Jesus is still active in their lives, even though they are misstepping here and there. And so Paul gives them a condemnation and con commendation. Did I say condemnation? I've got a problem tripping over words today. He commends them in verses four through six. He actually says something very good about them. I always thank my God for you, he says, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. He doesn't thank God because they're acting so Christian. He thanks God because Jesus has poured out his grace on this church. For in him, in Christ, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all knowledge. Now, there were abuses of their speech and knowledge in this church. But Paul says Jesus has really gifted this church uh, maybe as much or more than any other church, especially in these areas of speech and knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. So Paul gives him this condemnation. He's grateful to God because God has really blessed these Corinthians with spiritual gifts. Most importantly, he's gifted many with words of knowledge, with wisdom, with the gift of prophecy, with the gift of tongues. He's going to talk about that in detail in chapter 12. This church had an abundance of blessings. So Paul now continues to point them to their hope in Christ. We go on to verse 7, and he says, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. I'll just do a spoiler alert. When you get down to chapter 12, one of the things that Paul's saying is, Hey, one of the spiritual gifts is the ability to speak in tongues. 
And that there are many other spiritual gifts that God gives to his church body. One of them is the ability to speak in tongues. But just because somebody has that gift and somebody else does not have that gift, that does not mean that somebody is spiritual and mature Christian and somebody is not, and they need to ask God for the gift. God distributes the spiritual gifts however he wills. So whatever, God has given you a spiritual gift you may not know what it is, but God has definitely gifted you, and your job is to discover what that spiritual gift is, and then use that gift to help build up the body of Christ right here in the church of God in Sebastopol. So he's pointing them. He's saying, you don't lack any spiritual gift. He will also keep you firm to the end. Our Lord Jesus, he's going to keep you firm to the end so that you may be blameless. And God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Christ Jesus, is faithful. God is faithful. Now, one of the questions that you have is, is as you're starting this, is if this church is so messed up, how can God still be at work in this church? Has God given up on them? Because the Apostle Paul has not given up on them. Paul has great hopes for this church. It's, it's another thing to say, hey, this church is basically good. It's got a few problems. It needs a tune-up. It needs an overhaul here and there. Needs a couple of parts replaced. But other than that, you, you're still a church and you're still doing okay. And the reason Paul could have such confidence in this church that they were still going to overall be going in the right direction is that God himself will keep you firm to the end. It's not based on us. It's not based on my faithfulness or your faithfulness. It's not based on your own personal performance. It's based on the trustworthiness of God. He's faithful. He will keep you firm to the end. And he also says, because he says in, the, in verse 9, he says, God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ, that's what the Christian life is. So you say, what does it mean to, to be a Christian? It means that because of our faith in Christ, we have daily fellowship with the living God, daily ability to relate personally to the living God, that God is personal, that he's not just a force out there, that he's not a a a list of do's and don'ts. He's not a moral, he is our moral compass, but he is a person and he wants to relate to each one of us on a personal level. So now I, I, I did all that as introduction to get to the key verse, right? You know, certain um, books of the Bible have key verses and I think Corinthians does and I highlighted in yellow just so you wouldn't miss it because I think this is the key verse to understanding the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you, you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. You know, as scholars look over the Bible, sometimes they try to come up with a short phrase or a short sentence or maybe even one verse that will help you understand what that book is all about. For example, if you have the uh, book of Proverbs, right? We were talking about Proverbs last, last week with uh, the women, Proverbs 31. A wife of noble character, who can find? Well, we find it all over the place in this church. Right? So, but when you come to the book of Proverbs, is there a one key verse that'll help you understand the entire book of Proverbs? And yeah, there is. Proverbs 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to become wise in God's eyes? Begin by, the, by fearing the Lord, by reverencing Him 
as uh, reverencing Christ as Lord in your life, like it says in 1 Peter 3. Secondly, here's another example. When we talked about the book of Acts over a year ago, we were talking about the, the uh, Holy Spirit setting fire to the early church and helping it to grow. One of the key verses in understanding the entire book of Acts was Jesus' words to his followers on the Mount of Olives right before he ascended into heaven. And Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that by the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, the gospel had, had been expanded. The gospel had been preached and people were being disciples and churches were being formed in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, in all the regions of the Roman Empire, all the way to the very capital city of the Roman Empire itself, the city of Rome. So there's two examples of key verses to help us understand what a book of the Bible is all about. This verse in 1 Corinthians 10 is the key verse, that you agree with one another, that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Of course, a church that's racked by divisions, you, you could imagine Paul saying, you guys, the main thing you need to focus on isn't all your different opinions. You need to focus on what you have in common, not... Uh, focus on what divides you, right? Uh, division is a huge problem in a church. The Corinthians had a serious problem. The Corinthians had a life-threatening problem to the health of their church in the area of divisions. Their divisions were threatening the very unity of the church, and so Paul had to talk about this problem, even though he knew it was going to get uncomfortable with people. Paul says uh, in another uh, verse to another church, he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And he says, no, uh, grace and truth comes through Jesus. Sometimes we need to hear the truth. We always need to hear the truth mixed with grace. We always need to hear the truth mixed with love. But sometimes we need to be told the truth when we are getting off track. Remember I told you about the word of God, right? The word of God is, is, is inspired by God. And it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Look at two of those four verbs, rebuking and correcting. Sometimes the word of God, it, God knows how susceptible we are of getting off track. And he says, I have to use my word to get you back on the right track. So how does Paul know that there's problems in the church? Did a little bird tell him? Was it the Holy Spirit in a revelation? No, it was the old-fashioned way. Some people from Corinth traveled 300 miles east to the western city of Ephesus, and they said, Paul, we got problems in our church. We need your help. And so what he says is verse 11, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me. And I can just hear, you know, people in the church as they're seeing this letter read, they said, Chloe's household, who was it? Who spilled the beans? Who let the cat out of the bag? Who was it? You know? And you can just say, you know, they're, they're again, they're going to go attack the person who identified the problem, right? Instead of dealing with the problem. And so we've got to deal with the problem that there are quarrels among you. And then he says specifically, verse 12, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. The other says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And another says, I follow Christ. So after Paul leaves Corinth and he goes to the city of Ephesus, 
There were other prominent Christian teachers and preachers that came to town. I mean, thank God that Paul wasn't the only one in the entire Roman Empire who could stand up and effectively preach or teach the Word of God. Can you imagine in the United States of America, there's one person who can effectively teach the Word of God, and everybody else is just, you know, grade D compared to, to this one teacher. And unless you hear this preacher or teacher, no one else is going to do for you. And it seems like with the house groups in Corinth and the way they were getting divided, that seemed to be the way it was going because God was blessing this church with other good Christian preachers and teachers, right? There was Paul, and then this other guy named Apollos comes to town. Look what it says about Apollos. He's a gifted speaker. A lot of the Corinthians really liked him. In the book of Acts, it says of Apollos, he refuted all the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them, the Messiah that you're looking for is Jesus. Now, I would love to hear a guy like that. I don't know who I'd like more, personal preference-wise, Paul or Apollos or Cephas, which is another name for Peter, whether it was Peter, the apostle himself, or another guy named Peter. Uh, These were prominent Christian uh, preacher teachers that were coming to the city of Corinth. And so, in other words, Corinth was actually multi-blessed. To have, uh, to have a stable full of good Christian teachers and preachers. But instead of rejoicing that they had all of this talent, all of these people able to effectively communicate God's word to them, they were getting divided over them because their personal preferences were taking over. And somebody was saying, well, I prefer this guy. Well, I prefer Apollos. Oh, well, Paul's okay, but Apollos is better. And, and it turned into a point of division rather than thank God that we have Paul and Apollos and Cephas all being able to teach our congregation. So they, it, the problem, they were quarreling and arguing with each other because, and they started to align themselves like political parties. You know, the party of Paul, the party of Apollos, the party of Cephas. And they started saying, I want to hear, I want to hear our guy. I don't want to hear your guy. I like our guy better. You know, and Paul was saying, that is ridiculous. God has gifted every one of them, and they're all preaching God's word. You need to rejoice that you have each one of them and appreciate the nuances of each person's style of teaching. You're going to get something out of every single Christian pastor or teacher if your heart is in the right place and if you are willing to listen, right? And you don't sit there and go, well, I wish so-and-so was up here. I don't know what this guy's doing. You know, that's, a, that's, a, that's not a very Christian mature attitude. If you take a closer look at this church's problem of disunity, you find a common theme. And the common theme isn't just that they're divided. The common theme is that they're also arrogant and they're prideful. And because of that, they're immature. You realize that some, and and this is a a quick point I want to make kind of as a sidebar, some of the most immature people in the church that you meet actually think that they're the most mature. I don't know if you've, you've come across somebody. What about, what about somebody who takes pride in how much they know the Bible? Oh, I know God's word backwards and forwards. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. You know, there's the, there's the Tanakh. There's the, the books of history. There's the books of writings. There's the wisdom literature. There's the gospels. There's the history in the book of Acts. There's the letters of Paul. There's the apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation. I can tell you about an introduction to every book of the Bible. And a person does that. And What you end up sometimes seeing in a person like that is instead of staying humble and saying, thank God that I know a little, uh, but the more I study, the more I realize I don't know 
uh, about God and his character and the mysteries of, of, of him and his revelation in this world and why he does some of the things that he does. Sometimes the more you study, you realize the less you know. But these people were getting all prideful about how much they knew the Bible. Um, telling somebody the truth. Here's another sign where somebody thinks they're being really mature, but they're actually immature. Telling somebody the truth about their life, but having no grace or love. Ha telling them the problem, but not giving them any solution to the problem, right? No grace in their life. That's a sign of immaturity. Talking about how awful the world is. Even though Jesus says, but in John, right after John 3.16, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God sent his son into the world to save the world. So instead of talking about how awful the world is, let's talk about what we need to do to reach those people who are still outside of God's family. And then number one, here's another one, is railing against certain sins, certain sins in the church. And here comes some toe-stepping, so get ready. Railing against certain uh, sins in the church, railing against sexual sin in the church, uh, and yet never talking about some of the other uh, church sins that we're so guilty of, like gossip, or maybe like gluttony, or maybe spiritual pride, or, or anything like that. You know, only focusing on certain sins rather than other sin sins. That's a real sign of Christian immaturity, even though somebody thinks they're going to be mature. They haven't yet reached the level of maturity that James talks about because James, when he talks about maturity and true wisdom, look what he says here. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. In other words, first of all, if, you're gonna, if you think you're a Christian mature person, are you walking in the, the ways of Jesus? Are you loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself, committed to, the, to a local body of Christ, faithful? in your attendance, serving, connected in a life group, giving regularly to the church? I mean, is that, would that not be marks of maturity in the church? And it says, who's wise and understanding among you? Let them show that by their good life, by the deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. I like that James would say that because he probably was one of the greater scholars. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. I'm sure he knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, and he knew Jesus because he grew up with Jesus as his younger half-brother. So James has is, is got to be one of the wisest, most knowledgeable people around, and he's the one who says, let them show how wise and understanding they are by living a good life and, and good deeds and the humility that comes from wisdom, not the pride that comes from wisdom. I think this was the Corinthian problem. They were getting prideful and arrogant about how much they thought they knew or were growing or how much freedom they had, and they were, they were lacking humility. They weren't showing humility toward people who had different preferences for even teachers within the own church. Unity, unity in the local church. You know, it's a big deal to God. Paul says it in Ephesians. He says, make every effort, make every effort. In other words, double your efforts. Stop what you're doing. If you're not doing this, you need to stop and start doing this above all else. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because the Lord Jesus, he wants his church united. He does not want his church divided. Paul says this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? These rhetorical questions, right? Is, did, did, did you put your faith in somebody else other than Jesus? Because if we are putting our faith in Jesus, doesn't that something that unifies us rather than divides us? Don't we have something in common? One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, aren't those the things that unite us? Let's focus on that. And so let me jump down to this. Uh, there's four ways to build unity in God's church. Four ways to achieve unity in God's church. The first one is quit focusing on the differences, right? Focus on the cross. And we're going to see this. Paul focuses on this in the rest of chapter 1 next week when he talks about the message of the cross. Focus on the cross. Number two, embrace true wisdom. The wisdom that comes from God's spirit. The wisdom that leads us to humility, not man's human-centered philosophy that leads to pride and arrogance. Embrace true wisdom. Number three, recognize the equality of all believers. You've probably heard this statement. It's kind of a cliche. But you know the reason that something becomes a cliche is probably because it was a really good statement for a long time before it got worn out. But here's the statement. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? Whether you're a king or a pauper, whether you are educated or not educated, whether you are a rich first world person or a poor developing world person, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is equality equally saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's going to focus on that in chapter 3. And then number four, respect Christian leaders. Respect your Christian leaders. That leads to unity. And Paul talks about that coming up in chapter 4. This is all foreshadowing for the weeks to come. And here's the beauty of it. You, you can know. You say, what's, what's pastor going to talk about next week? You can know. Because all you have to do is read ahead. And I'm inviting you to read ahead. I'm inviting you to say, hey, Jim, are you going to talk about, I, I would relish that in an email. Jim, are you going to talk about this issue coming up? Because I was reading this in chapter two, and I think that's an important topic. Are you, I hope you don't overlook that. I'd fall off my chair in my office if I got an email from one of you guys like that. That would be amazing. So Paul says this, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, I don't want to get off track on that, but Paul's saying, it's not saying baptism isn't important. He's saying, my main role as an apostle is to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, you all need to be baptized into Christ. That's an important step of obedience. But I don't have to be the one personally doing the baptizing. I did that on purpose last time when, you remember Jamie Newman was up here and he got baptized? I personally asked Troy if he would baptize him. He was already friends with Troy. He was going to Troy and Jackie's life group. He had made friends with Troy. It doesn't have to be the pastor doing the baptizing. The, the, the point is that Jamie was baptized into Christ. And that's who he's putting his faith and trust in. And so Paul is saying, he appointed me to preach the gospel. And not with human wisdom and eloquence, he says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So here's our conclusion. You know, he's talking about the Corinthian church. I probably overloaded you with information today, and I admit that. I'm an information junkie. I love this stuff. I could have given you a lot more. You don't even know how much I held back. <laughs> she does, because I talk to her all the time about, did you know? That's, that's one of my lines. Really. Did you know? And I'm like, here she goes, well, tell me what you know, because you just learned it. And, and that's the beauty, of it. The, the beauty of the teaching gift is, it, is I get to learn something, but I, if you really have the teaching gift, you can't keep it to yourself. You have to tell somebody what you've been learning. So uh, the, the conclusion about a church racked with divisions and problems is that it's not just for the Corinthian church in the first century. Every church, any church today is going to have problems. You know why? Because we're human, 
Yes, we've been all been saved by grace through faith, but we all bring our baggage of our old self into the new Christian life, and we've got a lot of overcoming to do of our old character traits and habits. And one of those character traits we've got to overcome is this idea of pride and arrogance, and my way is the only way, and I don't like your way because your way is not my way, and I'm going to judge you because you don't do things my way. You know, that, that, those are the kind of things we have to grow through and grow uh, and overcome. God is perfect, but God's people are not. And even if everyone is in Christ, we've got a long ways to go, each one of us, in quote, our sanctification, in each of our journey to become more like Jesus. So here's our action points. Number one, and this is for your bulletin, you can fill in these blanks. Let's do what the Apostle Paul did. He didn't just dive right in and say, you know what your problem is, Corinthians? You remember he sort of gave him a commendation in the beginning? Oh, you're full of spiritual gifts. You're full. God is with you. Jesus is faithful. He's going to carry you through to the end. He says all these great things about him before he focuses on what's the problem. So in other words, the first thing to focus on is thanking God for what is going right. There were some things going right in the church. That's why Paul could still say, you are still a church of God meeting in Corinth. Focus on what God is doing right. Number two, focus on God's faithfulness rather than on our fickleness. I had to work to get to that one. Focus on God's faithfulness rather than our fickleness. And then number three, this is, the, this is the command for everyone because it says in Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Do your part to keep unity in the church. You know, when Jesus was around in the Last Supper around the table with his followers that night before he was betrayed and he stops right in the middle of the meal and he gets all sad and he says, you know what? One of you is going to betray me. Do you remember what the reaction of all the disciples were around the table? <gasps> is it me? Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And finally, Peter says, hey, ask Jesus, you know, who is it, right? Um, because everyone thought it was me. If, if you read that and it says, do your part to keep unity in God's church, and the problem with the church in Corinth was it was filled with division, I would hope that every one of those Corinthian believers would stop right there in the reading of the letter and would say, is it I? Am I the one who's breaking up the unity in this church? What am I doing or saying that's breaking the unity? Because I need to build the unity instead of causing division. God, help me not cause division. Help me promote unity in my church so that it can flourish and grow and fulfill the purposes that God has for it. And I hope you have the same attitude. Amen? There's a great weakness in a church that is divided, but there's a great strength in a church that is united. There's great power. You know what? There's no stopping God's people when they're all unified. What unites us is our common faith in Christ. We are equal together at the foot of the cross. We are all equally valued members of God's family, and we are called to love and to respect each other in the faith, even if we don't agree on everything. Do your part to keep unity in God's church. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you most of all. Thank you for the church of God here in Sebastopol. Thank you for Jesus and the reason why we gather together in his name to worship him, to learn from him, to become better disciples and followers of Jesus God, thank you for this opportunity that we've had to do here today. 
Um, thank you for this church family that in your design, God, in your providence, you were the one who brought us all together in this place. You put us together in this church body, and you're the one who's saying to us, love one another, accept each other, honor each other, forgive each other, and promote unity among one another. So God, help each one of us do our part, and may you get all the honor and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.